going to stay in the Sermon on the Mount again this week. Um, we're kind of working our way through it, I'm skipping around a little bit. I just continue to encourage you to continue to read and study of it. Study it. You, uh, you, it only is a few chapters, but um, you can study it for years. And I encourage you to spend some time studying it. Uh, my title of my message this morning is A Second Mile Disciple. Are you a second-mile disciple? What's it take to be a second-mile disciple? One of the things I want to remind us of is oftentimes when, just let's take us, for example, as rural Minnesotans, Americans, you know, there's words we use and phrases we say that people from other cultures, other states, other countries, no, have no idea what it is we're saying. We have all kinds of little phrases sometimes that we use, that we throw around, that um, we all get it, but other peoples, other cultures, they don't necessarily get it. And I just want to remind us that this is true when we read Scripture sometimes. Let me give you an example of some of the phrases that I see uh, and use. Some of them I read on Facebook, like the first one. Now, no offense if you use these phrases. There's nothing wrong with them, but... I love you to the moon and back. When you leaving? I mean, what does that mean? I love you to the moon and back. We say things like, boy, is he on fire. Well, put him out. Save him. Rescue him. We say things like, wow, is he or she hot. Well, what do we do to help him out? Cool him off a little bit. We use these kinds of phrases and we get it. But if we say those to someone else or in another language and they're trying to understand our English, they're going to look at us like, I give up. Sounds like there's a lot of tragedy going on in your world. This cake, this pizza is to just die for. Really? You're going to lay down your life for a piece of cake? Boy, are you Americans stupid. Do you understand how we could say those kinds of things? We get it. We understand it. We know what's meant. And maybe and even to a great deal of depth we understand what's meant, but someone else, not in our culture, not familiar with our language, not familiar with the idioms that we use, they're lost. And I'm telling you this because sometimes in Scripture, oftentimes, especially in Jesus' teaching, he does things and uses phrases, uses words that are based on what's going on in their culture, that the people he's talking to get it and understand it. Sometimes the problem is even one of translation. Certain words in the Greek within the New Testament, or in the Hebrew in the Old Testament for that matter, sometimes to translate them into English, you could use maybe three, four, five different words could sometimes be translated from one word in the Greek. And because of these cultural things, because of the translations, uh, we don't quite get it. And, you know, I'm big for taking the literal meaning of the Scripture. If it's obvious, go with that. But you know what? Even that sometimes doesn't give us the fullness of what Jesus is trying to teach. So when we look at some of his teachings, some of his words meaning, some of the cultural stuff, we really need to go beyond what the words say. You know, for for example, verse 48, it's going to be one of the verses in, in what we're going to look at. But it says this, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you know we're in trouble? If that's what it takes 
we're pretty well toast, right? We know we're never going to be perfect. There are attributes of God that we are never, ever, ever going to have, not even in heaven. So what does it mean? We are perfect. We have to be perfect. And, you know, you can start cross-referencing, and you're going to find at least three, maybe four, maybe five other places in Scripture where it says basically the same thing. What's it mean? Well, this is a good example of having to understand the word teleos in the Greek. It can be translated, and it is translated different ways in different scriptures. For example, it's translated perfect here. It could be translated mature or made complete. And when it's translated perfect, the general understanding of the meaning is it's, it's in the sense of accomplishing what one is designed to do is perfect. Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do and be what you're designed to be as a demonstration, a representation of Christ. When we are living in in such a way that we are demonstrating to the world, we're showing to the world Christ. We are mature. We're complete. We're perfect in the sense that we're doing what God designed us to do. Has nothing to do with never ever sinning again and being perfect in everything that we do to accomplish what we need. To do this, I'm using the phrase a second mile disciple. If you're familiar with this section of scripture in Matthew chapter 5, you probably already know what it's in reference to. In verse 41, and we're actually going to be looking at verses 38 to 48, but when I look at verse 41, and it says simply this, whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Simple enough, right? You know, this phrase alone would have stopped the Jewish audience in Galilee where he was giving the Sermon on the Mount in their tracks. Many of the things that Jesus is saying through the Sermon on the Mount, as he's taking things from looking strictly at law, the law, and making it more about the attitude of the heart, he's been saying a whole bunch of things. And he uses some hyperbole. You know, you ever say something to get some shock value, you maybe, maybe exaggerate a little bit? Did you know Jesus does that in the Bible sometimes? For example, when he's talking about adultery, he says, if you're right, I offend you, what are you supposed to do? Gouge it out. You ever see a lot of people running around with a gouged out right eye? Are they all being disobedient to Scripture? Now, he even went so far as to say, if you lust after another woman, you've committed adultery. Therefore, there's probably not a, well, I won't put us all in that group, but there's a lot of men in here who should have one eye. Right? Boy, and if somebody does something and lets your right hand offend you, what are you supposed to do then? Chop it off. You think Jesus really wants a bunch of people maiming their body? No, he doesn't. He's using hyperbole. He's he's making this dramatic statement to get our attention. To say, this is an important point I'm making here. And he uses this in a lot of his teaching. And the other thing that he did would be no different than you or me. If you're going to try to, to get a point across, isn't it really helpful to use examples that the people that you're talking to would really relate to? You don't have to go into the whole story behind the about the example because you all know it. 
And Jesus did that all the time in his teaching. He would make a point, and there was a whole background or backdrop of a story to the point that he was trying to make. Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go two. Well, the Romans at that time, they had created a brutal empire. Their empire, if we have a picture up there of an empire, there it is. You can't read all the countries. That's no big deal. The colors you see in the, in the darker shades of brown are at different times when the dark shades were added a little bit later. But they had this brutal empire which the Jews were living in. And when they conquered a people or a state, they would set up a government, usually of a kind of a puppet governor, whose real power and authority was in the police force they left behind, which was usually hardened Roman soldiers who didn't want to be there in the first place, and they were used to violence and being mean. And they could care less about the people in most of these countries. And this was true of the Jewish people. Rome was in control at the time of Jesus. We all know that, I think. And most of them hated the Romans. And Jesus is in Galilee when he's giving this Sermon on the Mount. Now, Galilee was kind of a remote area, a relatively safe distance from Jerusalem, and it was a hotbed for the Jewish zealots to train and plot how they were going to overthrow the Romans and reestablish their own authority so they could rebuild the temple and honor and glorify God in their country. And this is where Jesus is speaking. And there was actually a law, a Roman law, that they had stolen or borrowed from the Persian Empire hundreds of years before, but it had been put in effect in Rome a couple decades before Jesus. And the law was this. A Roman soldier could tell any citizen of any country that they've conquered, come here, carry my pack one mile. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what you were doing. Can you imagine how the Jews like that? I'm busy, and I'm headed this way, and I'm, I'm leading my mule, and I've got all... And the guy says, no, come on, and they happen to be marching that way. What do you do? You quit what you're doing, and you march one mile. Now, they measured a mile. It's a 1,000 paces. Can you imagine that Jewish person who's carrying it one mile, counting one, two, three, nine hundred ninety-eight, ninety-nine, one thousand? Because the law said they couldn't make you carry it one foot further than a mile. I think they probably didn't like that. They probably despised it and hated it. And Jesus says in this verse 41, if anybody, whosoever, compels you, orders you, commands you to go a mile, don't stop there. Go another mile. If they weren't already thinking, what is this guy talking about? In all the things that he's been telling them, that little phrase, that verse that we call verse 41, would have gotten their attention. What's Jesus' point? To be a second-mile Christian, you've got to go beyond the minimum. Go beyond what's demanded. Go beyond what's expected of you. You know what? This concept, you know, we, we've, where do you think the phrase, go the extra mile, came from? 
Go the extra mile. You want to succeed? You watch people that have succeeded in life and business and service businesses doing things. One of the things you can usually see in these group of successful people is they go the extra mile. They do the extra thing. They don't just meet you with the bare minimum. You know, look at all the fast food restaurants out there. Which ones do you like the best? The ones that do the little things better. The ones that do and go beyond expected. They don't just give you a burger and say, there's the ketchup and there's the napkins. They do something special. The fancier the restaurant, the more things they do special. Successful businessmen who sell a product, they go the extra distance in service, providing the services beyond the competition. Why? Because they'll succeed. And this is what it's, Jesus' point, I believe, here is, go the extra mile. Don't do the minimum. Verse 48 that ends this whole section says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do what you're designed to do. Can you imagine the shock of the Roman soldier when he hears you go 98, 99, 1,000, and you keep the bag on your shoulder and you keep walking? What are you doing? He can't make you or he's violating Roman law. What are you doing? I just want to carry it for you. Why would you carry my burden for me? To demonstrate the love of Jesus. To show you that I care. Just think of the conversations you might be able to have by going the second mile that you never would have had in that mandated mile. You know, when you're walking out that mandated mile, what's demanded of you, you're basically a slave. But after I take a step 1,000, I take step 1, I'm now a free man doing it on my own accord, going the second mile. It gives us opportunities for there in the Roman world, literally for us here, the Roman world that we live in, this natural world, this, this world of, of sin, darkness, an unbelieving world. It gives us an opportunity to demonstrate Jesus. It gives us an opportunity to be salt and light that Casey talked about a few weeks ago. It gives us an opportunity to, to share because they're open, they're shocked. It happens all the time when we go that second mile. It appears to me that Jesus throughout this is saying something like, it takes a lot of courage to speak for Jesus, doesn't it? But I think he's saying something like, let me tell you, Let me show you what God's intent for you is to live a life of love without limits. Wouldn't it be nice if we all knew what love without limits was? God designed us to all know that. He designed the family unit in such a way that we should have all experienced it. Love without limits. Look what has happened in our culture, or any culture for that matter, when love is dependent upon performance, expectations. I believe God is just saying, you know, if this is the way we live, to demonstrate love without limits, why would that be important to God? Because it's who He is. It's who He is. God is love, agape love, unconditional love for us, that's supposed to flow through us to the world around us. Not just to make them feel good, because it will, but it will, 
but to demonstrate who God is, to show them who he is, to be doing what God has designed us to do, to be perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect. I want to look at two discipleship commitments that are required if we're going to live out a life as a second-mile disciple. The first is this, to forego your own rights. I'm going to come back to that in a second because I'm going to read, I think, the, the text. I'm going to start in verse 38. We're in the middle of that section where Jesus is saying things like, you have heard, but... Here he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors or tax gatherers do that? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the pagans, do the same thing? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The first discipleship commitment that it takes is for us to forgo our own rights. Contrary to public opinion, We don't have any rights. When you signed up for this thing as a child of God and accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you were to die to self. We were to crucify the flesh, to give up our rights. That ain't easy. It doesn't come naturally. And it's not supposed to because we have to stay humble and count on God to even get close to denying our own rights. In verse 38, Jesus said, you have heard that it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, and they actually there, he's actually quoting Scripture. Sometimes it's Scripture, and sometimes it's what the rabbis or the Pharisees have added to it that God never said. And really, when you look at that phrase in the Old Testament, it was actually a compassionate thing because it would restrict retaliation. It doesn't say you have to do that, but it limits the retaliation. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus goes beyond what the law says, and he says, do not even resist. What does it mean there? This is another one of those phrases or words we need to understand. What it means is, do not resist means don't retaliate. Don't get even. Don't retaliate. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about forbidding us to defend ourselves. He's he's not talking about forgetting about self-preservation. He's just saying don't retaliate. Don't return evil for evil. In verse 39b, he goes on. 
giving what is really one of the first of four examples of ways not to retaliate. And I'm going to be real brief, if I can, here, to give us a background, because he's speaking about things in their Jewish culture they would have gotten right away. First, he says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Notice he said slap. I need a volunteer. (laughs) They all pointed at you. Come on up here. I can do it as long as it's biblical, right? Okay. You believe that you're not going to slap me back, right? About 90% they say people are right-handed. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, how do I hit his right cheek? I either got to go left-handed or slap him. It's not about being physically pounded. In the Jewish culture, a slap to the face was a total insult. It was saying, you're worthless. A little hard? (laughs) Thank you. He's saying you're worthless. It has nothing to do with the physical danger of it. It was a gross insult. It was demeaning. It was contemptful to slap someone. He's saying, hey, if someone shows you that kind of disdain, that kind of contempt, that's okay. Just turn the other cheek. Let them continue to insult you. Do not retaliate. Give up your rights. It wasn't about getting in a fight and just acting like you're the punching bag. That's not it at all. Don't retaliate. In verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat. You ever wonder where it says, I lost your shirt, came from? Here it is. Believe it or not, there was a law in the Jewish books that you could sue someone and take their shirt or their tunic, their undergarment. You could sue them and actually win that in the case. The judge would say, yeah, you get his tunic too. But if the judge would award them your cloak, the law was such that they had to return the cloak to you every night. Because for the poor people, the cloak was actually their blanket that kept them warm during the night. So he's saying here, you know what, if they take, give them the tunic, give them the cloak. It's okay. Go beyond the law. Go beyond what's expected. The second mile points out for those who are persecuting you. It's okay. Let Christ be your defense. When you love without limits, you are perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 41, he gives a third example. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. I've already elaborated on that. Go beyond the expected. Demonstrate love. Even to your enemies. And the fourth example Give to who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow. What does that mean? Just empty your pockets to anybody or it comes? No, it doesn't mean that. He doesn't disregard everything he's taught about discernment. He doesn't disregard everything he teaches about stewardship. But what he's referring to is, especially when he mentions that last part about borrowing, every seven years you forgave all the debt. You want to borrow some money from me and it's year one or two? He bet. Come on up. I want it. I'm going to charge interest. This is how much it's going to be. I get to collect for the next seven years. You want some money from me? Oh, golly, I don't know. This is year six and a half. I'm not going to do so well off this deal. He's saying, don't let the law stop you. Don't do the bare minimum. Go above and beyond. If there's a true need that a brother or sister in Christ has, give generously. Don't worry about just the minimum amount that you can do. So you can see when the, if you're a Jewish person in the Jewish culture, hearing all these things, Jesus is saying, 
It makes so much more of an impact upon you. We understand in greater depth what he's saying about giving up your own rights and loving even your enemy. Do not retaliate. When you love without limits, you're perfect like God. The second major discipleship, the first was for growing your own rights. The second one is to literally love others. You know, when you read those verses 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, it's like, oh, golly, i got to love everybody. The good news is you got a lot to love me. Right? I need to remind some of you of that. No. Doesn't mean we have to like everybody. Doesn't mean we don't have boundaries and relationships. But we need to love them. What does that mean? We need to care about them and the condition they're in and can we help them in that condition? Can we be Christ to them, even our enemies? And Jesus is saying, yes. He says, you have heard you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, there, what they're hearing is only half biblical. The Bible says love your enemy, but nowhere in there does it say hate your enemy. The Pharisees decided to add that. And the people embraced it because they're taught that. And he's saying, no, I say love your enemies. How do I do that? Well, start by praying for them. This is one of the things I tell married couples when they come to me and they're, they're having some difficulties in their marriage. I says, okay, all I want you to do this week is I want you to pray for your spouse. Pray for your spouse. Try to out-honor them this week. Let's start there. I mean, if you've got any sensitivity to the Holy Spirit at all, it's hard to stay mad at somebody you're praying for, seriously praying for, someone you're trying to honor. He says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Notice love here is commanded. It's not an option. Love your enemies. It's this agape love that Jesus talks about. That unconditional love. The love that comes with no restrictions, no expectations. I'm just going to love you because God loves me. And he's filling me with his love. And I want to share it with you. It will impact people as we live as second mile disciples. Going beyond what's expected. Going beyond the minimum. In verse 45 it says, In order that you may be sons of the Father. Again, does that mean, gee, I've got to do all that or I'm not really saved? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is, if you do that, everybody will recognize what God has done in your life. We might say things, instead of saying, um, you may be sons of the Father, we might use phrases like, boy, like father, like son. Boy, it's a chip off the old block. Gal, she's a spitting image of her mother. That's what he's saying. As we live like this, as we love like this, as we give up our rights to retaliate, we look like Christ. We're doing what we were designed to do, to love unconditionally. And in verse 46 and 47, he just gives some rhetorical questions. If you love those who love you, what's the big deal there? Even the tax gatherers, which nobody likes, they do that. If you greet your brothers only, so? What about those others? Even pagans greet one another. 
their friends. He's saying, go beyond what is expected. These two attributes I'm talking about do not come naturally, as we all know. We need the power of God living in us to not retaliate. I remember the first time, it was a pastor friend, and he was going through a terrible time in his church. And he came to a pastor's meeting looking for advice. How do I stop this momentum that's coming against me? How do I stop these false accusations about me? How do I do it? What would you do? And Jim McCracken, our apostolic leader, says very simply, don't say a word, let Christ be your defense. Yeah. I'm sitting over there thinking, I want to hurt somebody. They're lying about me, lying about it. It wasn't me, by the way. I'm just, I just threw that in there. That's how I would react. Naturally, in the natural, that's how I would react. It takes Christ living in us. It takes the Holy Spirit living in us to demonstrate the love of God, to not retaliate when hurt. It takes the power of God to love, to demonstrate Christ, to be perfect, to be teleos. And there should need to be no greater motivation than remembering Jesus. You know, there's nothing wrong with the first mile. You've got to go through the first mile to get to the second mile. The point is, don't stop at the first mile. Jesus went through the first mile. The creator of heaven and earth left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh. And he filled the mandates of the law. He followed the law perfectly. But he didn't stop there. He went the second mile. The God of the universe. The one who formed the stars, ranged the universe. The one who formed us with his hands. The one who created Adam and Eve in the garden and said, I'll walk with you. And even though we chose to walk a different path, he still made a way. He went the second mile. He walked the path to the cross. He took that abuse, that physical beating, the abuse he had to endure, the humiliation he had to endure, the full wrath of the Father that was poured out upon him, the wrath that he knew was coming, that in the Garden of Gethsemane he sweat great drops of blood. He was in such agony. He went the second mile for us. And that's what he's asking of us as his children. To go beyond the minimum, the mandated, the expected. To demonstrate the love of Christ. He's asking us to go and be disciples and make disciples. He's asking us to go and be ambassadors representing who he is. He's asking us to be teleos. Go and do what we're designed to do. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just pray and ask, acknowledging that in my flesh these things are not possible, but by your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in each one of us that know you as our personal Lord and Savior, by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, we are able. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach each one of us as we're in this process of of letting go of self and and listening and responding and being obedient to your Holy Spirit. 
God, I pray for each one of us here that, and there would be many who have never experienced truly unconditional love, that they might know that kind of love from their Heavenly Father. That it would set them free. That it would set them free of strongholds, insecurities, and fears to know your love. And that that love may flow through us to a hurting world that's starving for that kind of love. Help us in our own frailty by your Spirit, by your grace, and in your mercy to accomplish what we have been designed to do. Help us this week as we go our separate ways and in the workplace and as we cross paths with friends or strangers to be the hands and feet of Jesus that we might advance the kingdom for your glory and for your honor. Lord, we ask all these things that you would receive the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.